Our scripture reading continues from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Revelation, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people, from, some from the peoples and tribes and languages of the nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So ends the reading of God's word. Those ages three years old through kindergarten can now be dismissed to Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Would you pray with me as I ask for God's help in this important passage? Lift sin burdens this morning, Lord, through this passage. Bind up broken hearts. Pour out the fullness of your Holy Spirit on this body of believers and on those viewing by live stream or listening later. Make out of us even more bold, vocal witnesses for Christ, even though it may cost us dearly, including our lives. Bring about the end, swiftly, mercifully, perfect in its timing. And grant us to leave out of here not filled with disdain and judgment, but with joy, revival power, love abounding even to our enemies. And an overwhelming sense that God has ordered the world perfectly and it unfolds like a scroll being opened and enacted. Speak to us now from Revelation 11 and all the many passages that may come to our minds. The perfectly designed 
moment of reflection on Holy Scripture that it might be a living and powerful word to us, giving life to all who receive it. I pray this in Jesus' glorious and precious name. Amen. My aim in this message this morning is the aim I trust that the Holy Spirit has taken in writing Revelation chapter 11, and it's simply this, to tell us and to remind us that God by His Holy Spirit is always dwelling with us joyfully to prepare us for witness even to the very end. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and if this church is a faithful church, the Holy Spirit rests upon us and He dwells within us. If you're a believer, He rests upon you and He dwells within you. Isn't that a stunning feeling and a stunning thought to think God lives inside of me? God makes His house, His tent, His his hotel room inside of me. The living God dwells in the hearts of his people and among his people, even now today as we're gathered. He teaches us to forsake sin and to sustain, to love, to help, to keep, to guide us through every difficulty in our lives that he permits. One of my favorite pastors and teachers from a century ago is a man named J.C. Ryle. Here's how he says it. This is a summary of a sermon that he wrote on this topic. He says, The Spirit awakens a person's heart. The Spirit teaches a person's mind. The Spirit leads to the Word. The Spirit convinces of sin. The Spirit draws to Christ. The Spirit sanctifies. The Spirit makes a person spiritually minded. The Spirit produces inward conflict. The Spirit makes a person love the brethren, and the Spirit teaches a person to pray. These are the great marks of the Holy Spirit's presence. Put the question to your conscience and ask, has the Spirit done anything of this kind for me within my soul? Never forget that the Holy Spirit of God dwells with and within His church. What would it be like for your place of work or for your home or for your online interactions or for Proctor or Duluth or Superior, all the communities around like Locay and Esco and Carleton and all the areas of the Northland that you and I might frequent or or the places we might travel to both digitally and, and physically? What would it be like if the Spirit of the living God, the same Spirit, who's who's poured out in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, sustains the church for 2,000 years, is promised in full measure all the way through to the very end, according to Revelation 11, would dwell within us and empower us as we go out from here. Elections would be transformed. Schools would be transformed. Homes would be transformed. Relationships of every sort and kind would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. I hope what wells up in your heart is a a yearning and ache to say, I want more and more and more of what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3.19 to be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's the way Christians should pray. Yes, when you're born again, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But He's a person, and it's a relationship. So you don't say, oh, I've got the Spirit, and I don't think about that anymore. No, Paul said to the Ephesians, who had the Spirit, pray that you be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's like pouring the Pacific into a thimble. Do it, Lord. Overpower us with yourself. Fill us up to all the fullness of God. That's what John sees 
God do for the church all the way through the age of difficulty that we're in right now, right on to the very end when it becomes most intense, when we are completely abdicating all other false hopes, turning not to the power of man or the power of technology or the power of government or the power of human intellect or skill or the power of personal influence or money. And we fall before the Lord and say, not by might, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You may remember that in John, John's vision in Revelation, he saw seven trumpets. That's the section we're in. It's the same as the seven seals, and it will be the same as the seven bowls. They're all saying the same thing three different times, three sets of seven. They're all making the same point. God is bringing about judgment upon the earth, so repent. That's the main point of all three. After the sixth and severe trumpet was blasted and demons were outpoured and doing havoc on the earth, then there's this interlude as if to answer the question, where is the church and how are they faring during this horrible time? Well, the answer after the sixth seal was they are militant and triumphant, sealed and protected. The answer after the sixth trumpet was and sealed and protected, they take the trumpet of the gospel to their lips and blow it strong, clear, and loud as God's witnesses. So you heard me say that this interlude, chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation, is like a reinstatement of the very same thing he said to us, Jesus, back in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You might ask, I saw all of that paragraph matched in chapter 10, but where's the part where he says, and I'm with you even to the end of the age? Because it's going to get hard. It's going to be hard to be a faithful Christian to stand up for Christ even when you know you're going to lose your job. If you're a Christian doctor in California right now, according to a law that's about to be passed, and you say, no, I am not going to maim healthy bodies for unholy reasons, you will lose your job by law. There will be all manner of laws concocted in the days ahead in states like Minnesota and around the country, which will say for you to obey your silly, crazy God you call Jesus Christ, who's actually a dead man for 2,000 years, we will make laws to eradicate you, if not at least marginalize you. And you and I will have to say, I love Jesus more than the laws of this country. I love Jesus more than I love my freedom. I love Jesus more than I love being approved of or having this level of income or having a certain reputation or having my own life. Revelation chapter 11 is as if to say, oh, I didn't forget that I promised I would be with you even to the end of the age. Chapter 11 is me telling you, I'm with you by my spirit even to the end of the age. I want you to read chapter 11 with me, the portion that Kevin just read. I want you to read it with me with these four 
sentences in mind. And each one of them are basically saying the same thing. It's just my gropings, my strugglings to try to understand these 14 verses with four sentences to try to help us see that God promises by his spirit to be with us to the end of the age. This is the spirit of Jesus helping us be faithful right on to the very end, no matter how bitter it becomes. Here are my four sentences. First, the spirit's presence revealed by God measuring the church. I know that's an odd sentence. You'll see how sweet it is in a moment. The Spirit's presence revealed by God measuring the church. Second, the Spirit's presence is with us for fiery witness. The Spirit's presence is with us for fiery witness. Third, the Spirit's presence is with us to sustain us through death. And fourth, the Spirit is with us and within us for victorious resurrection. John, in chapter 10, in the midst of his vision, was recommissioned. He was given a scroll. Do you remember the scroll that the tall angel with the pillars of fire for legs gave to him? It was the open scroll that Jesus, who was alone worthy to to receive and open, has opened. It's like all of the events of God's plan for world history are coming to pass. And it's, it's not all good news, at least at the first. Some of it is also very hard or even bad news. But God says, I have the ability to even turn the bad news into good news. So it's good news and good news. That scroll, John is given and told to eat it, and he eats it, and it becomes sweet to his stomach and then bitter to his, sweet to his taste of his mouth and bitter to his stomach. Well, the contents of that scroll are laid out for us here in chapter 11. This is the scroll. This is one of the ways the book of Revelation shows us the content of God's plan for the days we're living in and the days that are to come as they grow more intense. And those four sentences I just gave you are my effort to try to help you walk out of here with such a joyful confidence that not only is the Spirit of the living God within you and among us, but He is not going anywhere. And that he will be with you to the very end no matter what you face right now. And that you can face the most horrible circumstances and you can be assured based on Revelation 11 that the Holy Spirit is not only within you and upon you, but he's going ahead of you and there's no place you will go that he hasn't already been there customizing it for your arrival. The Spirit's presence is revealed by God measuring the church. I get that from verses 1 through 3. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. I think John is being told to measure people, those who worship there. The altar, the place in heaven where they worship, and the temple, which is not merely a building, It was for 1,500 years. That's not its role anymore. Scripture tells us we are the temple of the living God. Measure the gathered people, the church, those who worship there. Three ways of saying God wants to measure the future temple, the place where He will dwell. The place that he says, there, that's where I am. How do I know that? Because this measuring in verse 1 is a direct echo of Ezekiel. Whenever you see measuring in the Bible, here's a wonderful, helpful clue. Whenever you see God measuring numbers and details in the Bible, it's always to show where he shows up and remains there. 
It's always to show his presence. That's what measuring in the Bible is for all the time. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 is the most extended measuring in all the Bible. And I confess, I have read that very fast sometimes. Nine chapters of measure, 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 measure. But listen to the last verse of Ezekiel, the last verse of chapter 48, when all the measuring is done, and here's the point. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Ezekiel 48, 35. Measurements mean God is there. So suppose a very important man goes into his tailor and he says, I want to be measured for a brand new suit of clothes. And the tailor brings out his best uh, woolen serge, finest fabric he has. And he he creates a, a generic suit and he puts it on the man and he says, stand in front of the mirror. And then the tailor grabs his pins and his, his measuring tape and his chalk and he's marking and pinning. And he says, ah, oh, there, come back. And the man comes back and a perfectly fitted suit is given to the man and he wears it and he says, this is how I would present myself to the world. God says, I've measured you people and you're my beautiful suit. I'm wearing you. I'm inside of you. You get all your shape and definition from me. I present myself to angels and to demons and to all the world to see the wisdom of who I am and how I function, even in the drape of my suit, to show that I wear my beautiful church, my people, those who worship me, my bride as a garment of clothing customized for me. This measuring goes on. This protection, this ownership, this dwelling with God's people, this taking them on to himself as, as it were as a suit of clothing goes deeper. God permits and even ordains that his church in the time between Christ's resurrection from the dead 2,000 years ago through the time now until his return and second coming, he permits persecution to purify, to make beautiful to fully sanctify the church. Look at verse 2. Ominously it says, But do not measure the court outside the temple, what used to be called the court of the Gentiles, but now all the Gentiles are inside the temple worshiping the Lord. Leave that out, it says, for it is given over to the nations that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The holy city, we know from Revelation, is another picture of the church. But here, God's ordaining, deciding, intending that for 42 months... Persecution, trampling, will come upon the people of God. And that's, of course, exactly what's happened in the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. It's happening around the world today. But the measuring of it is the point. It only happens for 42 months, a limited time period. We'll see more about that in a moment. But know this, the very presence and plan of God is underway even when persecution happens. He foretold this. This is fulfillment of exactly what the prophets were told in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Listen carefully. Again, the holy city is in view. The people of God are in view. Daniel is told that a beast, a fourth beast, shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time 
times and a half a time, a year, two years, and a half a year, three and a half years, the same as 42 months. Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 says that there is a beast to arise. I take it to be an actual man. Paul would call the man of lawlessness. John would call the Antichrist in the spirit of the Antichrist, which is present today. But this man will take his seat in some religious place of authority and he will make war against the saints for 42 months in Revelation 13.5. I take it that there is a spirit of the Antichrist at work right now. We're in that 42 months, that, that three and a half years, the time of testing, which is almost always what 42 months or three and a half years means in the Bible, a time of testing where evil is permitted. That's this trampling that's going on in portions of the church to purify, to sanctify, to ready the church for our eternity with God. We too, the church of Jesus Christ, are undergoing this purification much like Israel did. How long was Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament? Well, exactly 42 years, all told. We're in our own kind of wilderness right now. We have dangers that lurk from beasts trying to harm and and destroy us. I take the same 42 months, this three and a half years, as the time evil carries sway over God's people. Seven is perfect. Three and a half is far from perfect. That's the time God permits evil to do its purifying work in the lives of Christians. This numbering, this measuring of time is an evidence that God is present and with us. How do I see that even here in this passage? Look at verse 3. I will grant authority to my witnesses. This is just like the authority Jesus said he would grant. He's giving authority to his two witnesses. This is the time of the 42 months, the three and a half years, the time we're in right now. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, just like John, word going out, word going out. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, same as three and a half years, 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. We can see God's presence with us all during this time because we have his authority, and we're clothed in sackcloth. What's that a sign of? It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign that the Spirit of God has granted repentance to the church of Jesus Christ. The calling upon us, as always, is to be witnesses for Christ, wearing sackcloth. I'm so sorry for my sin. I don't come to you talking about your sin, person in the world, because I'm judging you and I'm better than you. I have my sin, you have your sin. We come equal and humble before the cross of Christ. We bear witness to the fact that God has forgiven us our sins and continues to forgive us our sins, even as we call others to repent of their sins. What does God say to a believer like those in Nigeria whose churches are burned and destroyed because they are faithful believers? They say not a matter of if our churches will be destroyed in Nigeria, but simply when. What do we say to believers in China who are being uh, socially discredited, removed from jobs and promotions, no loans, no buying of cars or homes, no, no college education? Because they're being socially discredited for every time they attend church. What do we say to the Chinese Christians who are faithful? What do we say to Christians who are being beheaded in uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia or other places where militant extremist Islam is killing by beheading Christians? What do we say to them? 
What we say to you, if your life or your career or, or some relationship that you are in has suffered significantly because you have stood firm on your love for Christ and, and experienced some of this God-ordained persecution, what do we say? Do we say God is apart from you and he has left you? No, just the opposite. We say when you pass through the waters, what does the Lord say? I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cushion Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Measurements mean God is there with us. That's what... John is told to write down, and the church is reading this letter for the first time, the Asian seven, and all of us are supposed to hear, yes, Lord, and you're with us too, aren't you? Yes, you are. The Spirit's presence is with us for fiery witness, verses four through six. There are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are the two witnesses. What would the early readers have heard in verse four? as the identity of the two witnesses. Well, at first they might have thought, maybe he's going to talk about Moses and Elijah because certainly the kinds of prophetic ministry Moses and Elijah do, will do. But when you remember Zechariah 4, where two olive trees and two lampstands exist, you remember he's probably at first talking about Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king, the two that led Israel out of exile back into Jerusalem. The olive trees, of course, are giving olives, and olives get squished, and that produces oil. Oil goes into the lamps, and the lamps burn. It's a picture of the faithful, prophetic ministry of the church provided for by the anointing olive oil of God in our lives. It's, it's almost like it makes me want to plant an olive tree to see if it would grow on these grounds here in northern Minnesota. I doubt that it would, but it'd be fun to try. Or fun to maybe have it inside. Does anybody have an olive tree inside their house? Squeeze a little olive into the little brass little thing and then put a wick in there and light it. Reminds you that we are a faithful prophetic witness for the Lord no matter what comes. We are, as it were, priests and kings to the Lord. And we're called to bear witness like Joshua and Zerubbabel, olive trees and lampstands, no matter what comes. Now look at verse 5. And it says, if anyone would harm them, of course we're told that we're going to be persecuted. We saw that. Then fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky. That no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. To strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That makes us think of Moses with those plagues, and it makes us think of Elijah calling down fire upon the prophets of Baal. I want you to re remember that this is an image for you, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, not only keeping you faithful during this time of persecution when you're speaking out the truths of Christ, but He is calling you to speak so powerfully the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that when you proclaim forgiveness, people are forgiven. Does it ever strike you that you have the power to say you are forgiven? 
They wanted to kill Jesus for talking that way. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, you will go out and you will proclaim forgiveness. And whoever you forgive, I forgive. That's a stunning sentence. Which implies if you withhold forgiveness, their forgiveness is withheld. Or Jesus said, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. John 14. Paul says, why are you squabbling among each other? You will be the judges of angels. I think often about the fact that when I'm administering the Lord's Supper, if I don't do it carefully to help you discern the body in a biblical way, according to 1 Corinthians, some of you will get sick and die. I was told by a pastor one time, don't ever say that to your people. Too late. There's power in the witness of the gospel and the proclamation of the living word of God in the lives of people who love it, and there's power in the people, uh, lives of people who hate it. We have this presence of God as He measures us and dwells with us. We have this presence of God for fiery witness, and now the presence of God sustains us through death. This is where it gets bitter. This is where the meal goes like a pit in your stomach, and it gets very bitter. Listen and read carefully with me. This is what's awaiting the church. It's happening some places now. It's awaiting the church collectively in the future. When they have finished their testimony, when the gospel has won people to Christ, when God's work is done, all the nations have heard, and the end has come, the beast, we only know very little about him so far, but we'll learn more in the coming chapters, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, so he's demonic, will make war on them, not just the two witnesses. We know that the beast makes war on all the saints, Revelation 13, 7, and conquer them and kill them. There are people who are plotting right now in the spirit of the beast and the Antichrist to kill Christians, including you and me. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. I think that's referring to Rome. But it probably refers to just the broad witness of the place of man and man's sin. Symbolically, it's called Sodom and Egypt. I think, I think Paul's talking about, or uh, John's talking about Rome here. Sodom, the place where sexual perversion was rampant. Egypt, the place where all power was concentrated. I think that would have been a, a, a place like they thought of as Rome. This is symbolic vocabulary to say wherever man does all his wickedness in the world, grabs for all his power, perverts sexuality in all manner of godless ways, that's the place where the beast will function and he will take Christians and he will cause them to die and their bodies lie in the street of that city. It says the place where the Lord was crucified. It's not talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about the Sodom and the Egypt, the dark sexual perversion and the place where all power was concentrated. This is talking about the fact that Christ was crucified by sinners in the world. It's way bigger than just one small geographical area. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. There's that three and a half days again, 42 months, 1260 
days in, in view. It's this idea of evil's time of testing upon us. 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets, that is the church faithfully prophesying, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So you can think of examples, can't you? You can think of examples where the spirit of the Antichrist, the beast in functioning, was reveling and rejoicing over the killing of Christians. I thought of a lot. I'm only going to give you one quick one. I thought of the fact that when the Christian-hating Nazis killed any believers in God, including six million Jews, many of whom were in fact true Jews by faith in Christ. They stole all their paintings and jewelry and wealthy items, including alcohol, and they had great parties of celebration in Nazi Germany over the killing of those who sought God. Islamic terrorists celebrate and feel themselves graduating and, and, and rising in their hierarchy if they are the ones who actually behead Christians in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia. This will rise to a feverish pitch at the last end times. We are rising toward it now. It's happening in some parts of the world. It will happen more broadly and more intensely as we come near to the end. Has God abandoned his people when that happens? Has the enemy won? There are the bodies of Christians bitterly lying in the street, not even honored by burial. Is God weak or worse, false to his promises? Has he left us? Has he, has he abandoned us in our moment of greatest need? No. Look at verse 9. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where their Lord, the anointed one, the one anointed with oil, the one on whom the Spirit fell with power, where he was crucified, so that some out of Sodom and Egypt, symbolically and spiritually, might be saved into the holy city and serve God among his people forever. The Spirit through John is reminding us that even in death, we are filled by God's Spirit and sharing intimate fellowship with Christ. So that Paul might write in Romans 8, 35-39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No way. None of those can separate us from Christ. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to be, and you want to raise, and you want to stir up in your spouse, and you want to create in your friends, and press on your parents and grandparents, and your, your fellow students at school, and your co-ministers and leaders in ministry, you want to raise up a people who are absolutely convinced that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will never be separated from the love of God, no matter what happens to me, including death. That's a spiritual miracle that I cannot achieve, but I long for to happen in the hearts of every person who calls the landing their church home. So that you could say with Paul in Philippians 3 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share, become a fellow partaker in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
Or say with David, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Death doesn't have the power to separate you from God. Don't fear death. Don't live your life fearing death. Don't teach everyone around you to fear death. Fear God. He has defanged death for every believer. Walk in absolute boldness and confidence that nothing can separate you from His love by His Holy Spirit. The Spirit is with us and within us for victorious resurrection. This is the final observation, verse 11. But after the three and a half days where the beast has killed the Christians and said, let's party. All those judgmental, arrogant, breathing fire, condemning Christians, they're all dead. Let's celebrate over North Africa where they once were but aren't any longer. Let's celebrate over Europe where they're all but dead. Let's celebrate over the United States where it seems like we're just about killing them all. We're silencing them anyway. Let's celebrate over Canada. Anywhere else that it seems like we've been able to marginalize and silence the church of Jesus Christ. Let's have a massive party. I'll give you gifts if you give me gifts. And we'll trample and celebrate for a limited God-ordained time of three and a half days. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. This is resurrection. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! Christ up in heaven saying, I went up by a cloud. You resurrected people. You come up in a cloud. Join me. Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Whoa! I was trampling on that one. And now they're rising up in a cloud to meet the Lord. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Gave glory to the God of heaven because they absolutely had to, not because they repented. This is just like Ezekiel raising dry bones back in Ezekiel 37. This is a stunning proclamation that resurrection is certainly to follow. The very power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead, and we will be raised one day, even if your body has been woefully trampled upon by the persecutors that hate your witness for Christ. You will be raised again after three and a half days. Here's my conclusion. I look through every commentary. I saw something in this chapter that I want to show you because I'm convinced with all my might it's true. But again, I'm a little bit out on a willow limb bouncing around because very few commentaries saw this. I had to go way back to the old, old, old dead guys to see anybody who saw this. This is not new with me, but at least I found a dead guy who likes it. You tell me if you don't think this is really here. This blows my mind. I love this so much I can't even find words to describe how much I love it. In these four moments where John is saying to the church and to us as readers, the Spirit is with you, you're going to be witnessing, He's measuring you because He's going to live inside of you, and He's going to ordain a temporary purifying 
trampling on you, but his spirit isn't going to leave you, and he's going to raise you up at the very end. You are looking, are you not, at the very career and life of Christ. Christ came at the fullness of time, measured by God. Galatians 4, 7. And he lived a perfect life, and then he ministered for how long? Three and a half years. Do you think that's accidental? He put on humanity. He's wearing us. Christ's life glowed with the fiery prophetic ministry of the word while he both enjoyed God's protection and endured God-permitted persecution at the same time, just like us. Christ endured and died a death as the faithful anointed king and priest, and he was in the grave for three, possibly three and a half days. The God-breathed resurrection, where the power of the living God put breath in the lungs of the Son of God, and Jesus breathed again, was raised from the dead to rise, to meet God in the clouds. How can you not look at these 14 verses and say, Jesus, I'm not going anywhere that you haven't already been. I'm going to go meet you wherever there's difficulty and persecution. Because you've walked this path already. When I read the Gospels and see how every detail of your life unfolds, I'm looking not only at your biography, I'm looking at mine. Live with your eyes fixed on Christ, knowing that we are hated. We are hated. But don't focus on the hatred. Focus on the fact that the reason we're hated is that we're so loved by God. And that His Holy Spirit grants us sustaining grace for every difficulty that hatred may cause. Let the Lord fill you up to the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. Ask often, Lord, in this struggle, in this pain, in this difficulty, in this decision that I'm facing, would you fill me up to all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. Flee from relying on your own power, dear ones at the landing. Flee from trusting in your own skill and ability. Wait on God in the temple of His presence until, like Luke 24.49, you're clothed with power from on high. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, take Revelation 11 and apply it, precious as it is, to the hearts of these dear ones. Cause them, I pray, to know and love the intimate, moment-by-moment, daily keeping in step with you, the Holy Spirit. You're bearing fruit. You're giving gifts. You're convicting of sin, you're reminding of the forgiveness of sin, and you're growing us, strengthening us, causing us to see and behold Christ and ever more become like Him as we do. Bind our hearts together in, in greater love fellowship with each other than we've ever known. Bind our hearts with you in greater union and intimacy with your spirit than we've ever known. Remind us even in the darkest and hardest moments that nothing can separate us from your love. 
That, that it was us who populated the Sodom and the Egypt that killed you, Jesus. And yet in your being crucified, you saved out of Sodom and Egypt the sinful world. Worshippers who have been measured in the holy city, the temple of God. Saved, cleansed, beloved, welcomed, made righteous and whole by the blood of the Lamb. We ask all this in Christ's great and precious name. Amen.